0: Hello and welcome to Comic Book Decalogue. This is a podcast courtesy of the Comics Journal on which we seek to perfect the comics interview, testing out a series of 10 comprehensive questions. My name is Greg. I think it worked. I certainly have a lot of enemies now, which I can only interpret as a sign of success. Hannah Blumenreich is this month's guest. Hannah's currently serializing her epic of fraternities and immortality, The Immortal Bro, on Patreon. You may also know her from her fanfic cult hit Spidey Zine. Her work's wide-ranging and super clever, and our conversation covers a lot of ground as well. Before we launch into that, I'm expecting that this podcast is a couple episodes out from beginning a hiatus. Uh, There's an exciting thing or two I'll have to attend to in 2019. And I'm pleased to announce also that as the show approaches episode 35, I'll be releasing Comic Book Decalogue, an incredible celebration, a combination coffee table book and Blu-ray cementing the legacy of this podcast. An incredible celebration is going to run about 400 pages uh, with a collection of personal essays from me, an oak cover, sewn stitching, uh, both the book and the disc, uh, and careful transcriptions of several interviews, too. Uh, it'll retail for about 299 and I am going straight to retail. No crowdsourcing. Uh, I leveraged a lot to put this thing out, uh, so look forward to more word on that next time. Uh, and right now, please enjoy 10 Questions with Hannah Blumenreich. Our first question is, what's the last comic you finished reading?
1: Um, I think the last comic I finished reading was Sweetness and Lightning, Volume 4. I don't remember the name of the person who it's by. It's a manga. It's super good. It's about a single dad and his young daughter learning to cook and it's just really sweet and nice and nothing bad happens to anyone and it's a mm-hmm. perfect antidote to everything bad happening right now sure. in the world.
0: Now, do you go deep with, with the food manga tradition or was this a recommendation or how did you come across a book like that?
1: I'm not sure. I don't know a lot of food manga stuff. I think I read one uh, issue of Delicious and Dungeon and it was fine. It didn't like jive with me as much as it did it seems to with everyone else. But I think this must have been a recommendation from somebody, and I just really liked the art style, so I started reading it. I liked it a lot.
0: It's delicious in Dungeon. I think I've had this series recommended to me. Uh, Is it a fantasy series? They're stuck. in. Is it a dungeon or is it the belly of a creature?
1: I think both. Okay. If memory serves. It's been a while now since I read it, and it didn't, like I said, it didn't stick with me so much. I wish it had because I think it's... It's got, like, a good blend of humor and adventure and all that stuff that I should like, but it just
0: wasn't my thing. Apropos of of nothing too bad happening, um, like, I first encountered your work through Spidey zine, obviously, which is a a more Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: character-centric
0: Spider-Man tribute project without the the life or death stakes that you sometimes find in those stories. Um, So I was wondering, how representative is that I don't know, condition in a story for you and your approach. I know you're working on a project uh, right now, The Immortal Bro, where <laughs> all the concept art I've seen has some people, uh, you know, bloodied or, yes. or or you know, wielding weapons. So right. is that a departure for you?
1: A little bit. I like to go for a low stakes kind of thing. I find it's more interesting to me. And then with something like my Bro comic that I'm working on, um, I find that it ramps up the high-stakes stuff a lot more and gives it way more weight. Um, I recently started rereading the Redwall series mm-hmm. by Brian Jakes, and it's definitely got that balance where, like, for the first, like, half of the book, it's just like, oh, how are we going to prepare for the summer feast? And it's just, like, cute little creatures eating and, mm-hmm. like, having great like tiny little adventures but among themselves and then suddenly they're all dying horribly and you're like when did this happen this isn't supposed to happen in my children's fantasy <laughs> and i like that balance a lot i like the low stakes stuff sort of giving way to bigger
0: things when you're doing uh, like a shorter low stakes piece like the kind we see in the Spidey zine is it a challenge knowing like when and how to end those pieces? I'm thinking that with like a blood and thunder genre story, by mm-hmm. comparison, uh, one advantage is you know the world is either saved or it's not, and when you answer that question, you kind of know that the story is over. So by comparison, with the the less not less messy because life right. is messy, but but with the less um, life or death stuff, what are the challenges for you of, of working outside that kind of genre framework?
1: I think it's a matter. Of <coughs> Excuse me. A matter of knowing what it is that you're following in the story. I think if you're doing something that's lower stakes, you tend to be going more character driven. So then you're looking more for like, when has this character feeling made a full journey? Where has or like the character's um, like an errand. Kind of like an emotional errand.
0: That's a great term. Oh, I'm <laughs> gonna, gonna store that in <laughs> my copyright that
1: and make a million dollars. So it's less about like we've clearly completed the the journey. We've clearly completed the trek or whatever. Um, what's the Dungeons and Dragons term for it?
0: The quest. I don't yeah, play Dungeons and Dragons.
1: Uh, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> not real nerds
0: yeah that's not a post incidentally I just I just never had the right crew listener same We play risk legacy ask me DM me if you want to know what risk legacy is
1: I can sort of handle a game as complex as checkers and that kind of and that's it for me um, but like with with the bigger stakes thing so you're doing there's a very clear journey that you're set on mm-hmm. you can clearly follow like there's a lot of storytelling like sort of rules that you can follow in terms of like first act, second act that kind of stuff. And with smaller stake stuff, I think if you sort of, you just have to kind of renegotiate the way that you think about telling a story and what you're trying to get out of it. Um, and usually it's just it's just finding those smaller notes and sort of digging into that. And sometimes I think that's a lot easier mm-hmm. from a storytelling perspective. You have less threads to, like, tie together sure. to expand on.
0: And question mm-hmm. number two. What cartoonist doesn't get enough praise?
1: Uh Everyone I know <laughs> this might be too big an answer that he might be too big or already have like too big of an established career but my, I think Stuart Eminem doesn't get enough I, uh, he's do you know do you know yeah yeah uh, he's, he's been an artist on so many things for so long he's so good um, He was the artist on next wave he was the artist on like I think the last of the dance lot. Spider Man stuff. He was working on the X Men stuff that came out a while ago and he's just so good every time, everything he does. And he's just never had like as much recognition, I think, as some of the other like big artists, big name artists, especially not on his own, like his smaller projects that he likes to work on with his wife and stuff.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. That's, I don't <laughs> think he's he's, you know, well travelled certainly, but uh yeah, I think Oh. Wow, we're about to be murdered
1: <laughs> by Michael Myers. That's cool. Okay.
0: Uh, I, I'll just speak for myself. Like I, like growing up reading comics in the '90s, I think I was aware of this stuff. Even and then revisiting superhero stuff in my 20s, um, even just seeing different inkers on Stewart Immense stuff made a big difference to me.
1: I just remember the Dungeons and Dragons term. It's called campaign.
0: Okay, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that makes sense. It's back. There we go. Thank you, brain. Working been
0: full-time. Um, yeah, these are, I, I don't know, maybe the perils of spending a, a certain amount of time in the, a particular comics silo or genre tradition is that, like those, those projects he does with his wife mm-hmm. say, I think for people who are you know comfortably like uh, enclosed in there... <laughs> it's Mac. Yeah, this, is, this better be a good episode if, I, if it's how I'm going out. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, if, if it's someone's like a their comfort zone is uh, like serial uh, superhero comics uh, or if you know another person's uh, you know sensibilities lean towards like alternative cartooning yeah, th- there are these certain like middle areas that are you have to really go out of your way for
1: for sure but then uh, also I might as well throw out some other names since we're here sure <laughs> there's Mildred Louise she is amazing she works on a, reb- a web comic called Agents of the Realm. she's great um, she recently has taken it fully independent, I think, and is working on it sort of anew. And I'm excited to see what she what she does with it, because it feels like now she's sort of uh, she's got sort of a freer deadline space, which means that she can really sort of buckle down and do the work like to the to her own liking, sort of, and without the pressing deadlines. So I'm excited to see how how that turns out for her. There's Naomi Frankies who's great. Um, she was recently working on Misfit City, and I don't—I think that ended. And she's amazing every time, everything she does. And Shivana Sucdeo, who is a great cartoonist, who you know. Yes. Yes. yes.
0: I can only say so much due to, due to conflicts of interest, but yes, she is, <laughs> she is exceptional. And all right, question number three, what's the most widely loved comic you can't connect with? That I can't, that connect, you can't with. connect with? That you
1: can't connect with. Tezuka. I
0: don't, Interesting. I can't. That is not one of the usual answers, and there is there is a roster of, of, of typical answers to that question. The Tazuka has not come up. Right. That's fascinating.
1: I tried. I tried. I um. I had seen I think one or two episodes of Blackjack when I was younger, so I went back to try and try it out as a comic, and it just I, know, I can't get past it. I've tried to like pick up some of his stuff to read, and I just I can't get into it. And I don't know if that's just the age and just like the style is sort of dated now and it's just difficult to get into that the storytelling the dialogue you know it's just i just can't get into it although i will say i appreciate sort of the generation of artists that came after him that was influenced by him mm-hmm. so i like that but i just can't get into him.
0: how like how far back in comics history do some of your go-to's uh, go. You know, are there are there any folks from like the the global mid-century comics canon that you would cite as as favorites or inspirations?
1: Not really. It's difficult to go that far back. I think the furthest back I've gone and enjoyed is the original She-Hulk run, which is like what the '70s. I think so. Yeah.
0: Yeah, um, I think they were doing it right if not coinciding with it, 70s Hulk TV show, it was thereabouts, I think. They might have wanted to copyright the idea.
1: (laughs) Like, like, put it in the comics so we can make more money off it. I think that's as far back as I go. It's tough. I imagine a lot of it, it's just a dated thing at some point, and it's hard to find things that sort of carry through in storytelling terms.
0: What is it about that She-Hulk run that has a, a particular resonance?
1: I think... I think I understood what people get out of superheroes from She-Hulk because it's that right like mixture of like kind of cheesy but it's also really funny and it's just it's just a good blend of of corny fun uh with a good a good protagonist sort of carrying it all through um every once in a while it goes a little too crazy for me because they're like and now werewolves and you're like "Uh, you can't just do everything you guys (laughs) (laughs) I don't intentionally try to give myself like a cutoff date where like I don't go back beyond like what the 2000s or something it just kind of happens that way I, A lot of things that are coming out now resonate with me a lot more than anything before that um which is probably why I started making comics to begin with sure you know like a lot of the stuff that existed just didn't speak to me at all but I liked telling stories in that way so
0: well, I don't want to keep asking questions about Spidey Zine because I know that's in your oh, r- your rear view to a point. But like you, uh, your mention of finding an, like an inroad in the superhero genre mm-hmm. is interesting to me. With that in mind, I'm wondering like for for like that the Spider Man character, sure. if there was a similar discovery of a pathway toward appreciating it, or if it was with that character being more I don't know um, kind of omnipresent in the culture, yeah. or if it was a different thing.
1: That would be it. I think the movies were coming out around the time I was in school Uh, maybe middle school I don't remember dates now (laughs) Um, and so sort of there was definitely kind of a a renewed interest in Spider-Man in pop culture Um, so that was a big boost but I never really got into him I never really got into superheroes and then I just sort of found interest in that character kind of on my own and that was about it I don't have much interest or background in the Spider-Man canon because I find it boring. Yeah. It's <laughs> like that, and over-involved. Yeah.
0: It seems like that disinterest can be an asset in yeah. In, yeah, in context, like your your comics. I sometimes, uh, in spite of having uh, like an affection for the genre from like, my own childhood, because I'd I read quite a lot of superhero comics mm-hmm. growing up, I think I want to like contemporary superhero comics more than I actually do. Yep. That uh, <laughs> sounds about right. All right. Uh, let's stick with uh, adolescence for a second. Yes. Question number four is you can send one comic back in time to yourself at age 14. Mm-hmm. What is that comic?
1: Mm. Uh, it came out sort of recently. Well, translated it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Go For It Nakamura-kun <laughs> by Sionde. Uh It's a BL manga. Um, and I feel 14-year-old me, who's a big old nerd, would have appreciated it tremendously uh it's a lot of fun it's just like a fun kind of friend love story Mm -hmm. and the art is so good and so effortless and i think it would have been like for a long time for me trying to make comics i wasn't sure what to look at in order to sort of replicate and learn from Mm -hmm. and like looking at her art it's like everything she does is exactly the right choice and it's done so easily and you can tell she like didn't have to labor over it. She just knew from experience. Mm-hmm. Like You totally get that and that would have been something that would have been really beneficial for a young me learning growing up. Uh, I think the other thing that would have been super useful because everyone should be reading it is My Lesbian Experience with Loneliness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's a comic that's like relevant to like so many people right now just that kind of level of anxiety and like and depression and like all that mental health mental health stuff that's tied to like so closely to millennial culture and everything and it yeah i don't know if it would have been useful to 14 year old me but it would have been useful to hang on
0: to (laughs) sure well let me ask you which came first then were you reading comics before you knew you wanted to become an artist? Yeah. Uh Were you...
1: But they didn't feed into each other so directly. Like, I was reading comics from, like, the newspaper, but I wasn't reading them like, wow, these are so inspiring and definitely what I want to do. Thank you, peanuts. <laughs> it was more like I read them and I sort of replicated them because they were there and I was, I was enjoying them. But in terms of, like, what I wanted to do with comics... I don't know. I think I picked up some comic books because, like, some floppies because they were what was around, and I sort of had this idea that that was what I was supposed to be reading. But it never really... They weren't memorable. I don't... I have not... I got nothing from them. Um, I think when Borders was around and they had, like, all the manga, that was way more relevant to me. Mm -hmm. It was hitting on things that I wanted to, like, get from comics more, but it wasn't something that I was replicating, which
0: is... I don't be interesting. <laughs> I think that's probably a very common millennial experience yeah. also. And I think it's interesting, too, the way, uh, at least for people our age and maybe like a generation older, uh, newspaper comics were kind of like a cultural wallpaper. Yeah. Even for people who were, you know, readers of comic books, you know, by the time you reach the 80s, the 90s, the first decade of, of the aughts, um... Or is that just called the odds? That first decade, no one needs to cry for the poor put upon like uh, Wednesday comic readers. But like mm-hmm. there, there was like the periodical floppy comic has, had its own sort of codified, uh, somewhat like, put down or, or pigeonholed, uh, like very specific idea of what it was. And I think it was also in most people, people's minds like intertwined with an idea of what comics is more so than the newspaper cartoon, which was just kind of there
1: for sure, definitely. Like when you're telling a big arching story uh, that you know is going to be put together in, like, for instance, in a flappy in like twenty some pages, or if you're doing like the graphic novel now and you're like, okay, so I've got like 200, 300 pages to work with, versus like the three panel strip, and it's just not only a different way of thinking about storytelling, but a different way of thinking about reading storytelling. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, if you want to go to Calvin and Hobbes or something, the good shit, <laughs> and. Uh, you're reading that and like the big collections you can like see it put together and be like oh okay this was like a continued storyline that you did for like a week and it's just it's, but it's completely a different way of like internalizing comics and reading them and I guess the closest thing to that now is like web comics but even then it's feeding into like a much longer storyline it's just the way you get the information is it's like a page at a time that
0: It makes you admire, I think, the newspaper cartoons who attempted those sort of arcs. For sure. Like, right now I'm reading even a Peanuts collection from the, I think, early 60s, and it's been interesting to me to see how often Schultz does that, um, which I think requires a lot of trust in the newspaper reader to, like, even if they're just doing it unconsciously, recall what had happened the day before. Right. um, Because all the surrounding strips probably weren't making that same request of a reader. For
1: sure.
0: I think even with webcomics now... You can always scroll or click back to the the previous Mark. days thing.
1: It's all there, archived. Easy. You have to like hang on to your newspapers like a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta know what happened in Mark Trail.
0: Yeah, I'm I sure can't throw these did. papers out. <laughs> I feel like every so often you'll maybe see at a garage sale someone's sure. homemade Mark Trail yes. archive. Perfect.
1: That's what I want. That's the person I want to be.
0: In life. <laughs> Right, well, this is, this is germane to our fifth question, too, yes. which is, how much do you think about readers when you're making a comic?
1: Not a lot. <laughs> not a lot. Or at least not when I'm, like, thinking about a story I want to tell. It usually comes in a form of doubt, more than like, well, this will be something that people will want to read. It's more like, oh, no, who's going to want to read this? That kind of thing. Or like, oh no, people are... Or like, sort of anticipating a bad audience response. That kind of thing. Which has happened less since I stopped making Spider-Man related content. Uh, and it's it's got a smaller reach. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> um, but usually that's how it goes. But when it comes to actually like, making or writing a story or coming up with characters, it's... It's very self indulgent.
0: <laughs> okay. That's interesting to I me. Mean, uh, a slightly different question. Mm-hmm. How much has your idea of uh, what your readership is changed over the last few years? A lot. Has it expanded and contracted again or
1: Yeah. When I started doing those Spider-Man comics. I didn't have like a large audience or a large falling and so it was like, a lot easier to think of like I'm just making these and putting them out. going to be like for friends to see or like the odd passing internet person and then it became a thing and they caught on and (laughs) became the bait of my existence (laughs) (laughs) not really i still like them but um i think in terms of chasing an audience it's changed and in part that's because i got the audience and that's kind of a nice little, little privilege to have is like okay now. I got you here now. I can do whatever I want. Thank God you're all locked into this room with me. Mm-hmm. I'm not letting you out <laughs> uh, until I tell you about my OCs. And I think now, sort of getting a taste of that and what that's like and what that sort of requires from me, uh, and kind of that audience creator relationship. I got a taste of it. I didn't really care for it, and that means that I can make a shift. Um, so. I sort of want to put out more what I would like to do on my own side of things, audience be damned, <laughs> and at the same time, you know, you really need the audience feedback to have validation, because otherwise you're just sitting in a room making stuff for yourself, and that's not not a thing I want. So.
0: That's interesting to me, uh, in, in part because at the moment, uh, you've been running the middle the immortal bro on Patreon first, which at once I would think that that's an indication that you've got a kind of critical mass of people who are attuned to what you do. But at the same time, I know if it were me, I would be constantly thinking, okay, like, I have to please these people who are directly subsidizing the art that (sighs) I'm making.
1: That's definitely a line of thinking that's sort of running at all times. Um, And it has... For me, it has less to do with the content or the nature of the content as much as like the quantity of the content at this point with Patreon, um, which can be stressful. I think everyone sort of has a very frustrating relationship with Patreon, kind of as a platform, but also just the way it works. And it often causes a lot of self-doubt, especially when you see people sort of leaving or like ending pledges, which they are completely and totally in their own right Mm -hmm. to do. But you're like, oh no, why'd you leave? Why'd you take your $5 from me? And for me, it sort of incites a feeling of like, I'm not uploading enough or I'm not giving enough of the content as quickly as I should be and has less to do with like the content itself. Because I'm like, if I'm giving my all in what I'm doing and what I'm making, and I believe in it, and these people are here for it, then we're all fine. We're all on the same page. Uh, No pun intended. (laughs) And uh, so that's sort of a nice thing. Um, And in that respect, I really like it. In that respect, it's like, you know, I'm making this content out of nothing that no one's heard of before because I'm just, it's new. It isn't Spider-Man. It doesn't have like an established fan base and an established lore. So it's nice to have people who are like who show up for it, who are like, "I'm here for this new weird thing that you're making, even if I don't fully understand <coughs> what you're talking about."
0: Well, let me ask you a question about that for a sec, uh, uh, because the Immortal Bro, yes. as I understand it, there is a lore that you're building yeah. there. So I was wondering what challenges uh, or, or surprises you've encountered so far in doing that as opposed to uh, ripping with this thing that has, uh, even if you don't engage with all of the backstory, mm-hmm. a, a substantial well of, of uh, stories and tropes right. that you can draw from.
1: Um, and, I like doing it a lot. I love world building. I like character building. I know it's one of the pitfalls of making your own stuff, of sort of spending too much time world building instead of just like going on and making the content, but I think on some level, you know, there's there's a necessary amount of world building that needs to happen before you, like, embark on the storytelling, because at some point you know, if you, like, realize a thing about a character at some point, you're like, this should have been part of their backstory this whole time, this sh-, and it completely changes and influences the character, it's something that you might have wanted to have, have, mm-hmm. have had at the beginning. So, I like doing that. I think it kind of becomes... A balancing act for yourself behind the scenes where you're like, how much story do I need to have? How much character do I need to have? And how much can I show that I do have while retaining all this other stuff that I can still kind of work on and tinker with behind the scenes and it won't change what's already mm-hmm. existing. So that's fun. It's a, a fun puzzle kind of a game.
0: <laughs> it sounds like, Yeah. Would keep a person occupied oh, yeah. for sure. Okay, now I want to be careful with this next question because <laughs> uh, uh, Hannah and Lister. I want to be clear that I'm not saying let me let me center the male experience for a minute. But uh, like but the common denominator of those works is interesting to me because you're dealing with masculinities yeah. and creating characters who are going to model certain masculinities for readers. At least with the Spidey zine, it's it's uh, let's say for the sake of argument, although Spider-Man's not the most problematic superhero, <laughs> it's like maybe like the least toxic version of a, of that character. Sure. So I was wondering, like, if what sort of reactions you've had from, like, male readers in particular? Ooh. And if they, they've just been quietly, like, nodding and learning, that's fine, too. That's what I would encourage most of the time, <laughs> folks.
1: Um, with the Spider-Man stuff, I don't know. The, uh, the response was sort of quietly there from male readers. Typically what I got was... If I got response from male white male uh, readers of the Spidey stuff, they were saying stuff like, I've been a reader my whole life, and this one is the one that really resonates with me. That kind of thing. I'm going to humble brag a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I got more, way more, was people being like, this is the first time Spider-Man has resonated with me. Um, and that often came from people who weren't white males. Sure. Uh, sometimes from white males, but more often not.
0: I don't really think there's a kind of a clarifying effect to those yeah, comments. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. The only time I really came close to seeing a response from, like, the establishment of white men uh, in response to my Spidey stuff was... There was a couple instances of, like, you know, people who, like, um, work in the industry who had positive responses to Mm -hmm. it. And that was nice. And some of it was... Some of it definitely feels more now in retrospect. Like, it was a curiosity thing of, like, who is this now? And some of it was like and some of it now is like I can you can sort of shift out who's who's definitely more interested in it and, and me as a creator and who's more interested in like who the hell is this person coming into our turf. Can I swear on this? Yeah, oh yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and there was an instance where I was on a panel, the only time I've done Spider Man related panel, um, which I was not invited to. I crashed it. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't officially invited to it, I should say. And I was the only woman on the panel, it was not an especially uh, racially colorful panel, let's say. Um, and it was interesting, I guess, to just see, like, to get the kind of confirmation of, like, yeah, I'm really bored of like establishment superheroes. I'm so bored of like this, this sort of kind of people who work in the industry, the kind of stories they tell, the kind, the way that they process ideas and storytelling and it made a lot of sense I think now like why my different approach to all of it would resonate with a different kind of reader Um, and then when it comes to take a super long way back to the second part of this question, uh, when it comes to The Immortal Bro, it's it's a story about five white dudes five cis white dudes and I worry that Like, I have a reasoning to it. I'm not treating it as, like, a default kind of character slate. Right. But I worry that it's going to be seen that way because it has been the default for so long. And, you know, people, like, see it that way, like, at first glance, they're totally within their right to think that because that's what it's been. Um, And so I worry a lot that that's going to not attract a certain kind of reader but more push away the readers that I do want. Sure. Um, I mean, are you
0: able to speak on on the intentionality there without spoiling parts of the story? I mean, like, is it, how much of it is an interrogation of whiteness or white, specifically white masculinity?
1: I think it's an undercurrent. It's not going to inform the entire story, but it will sort of, I want it to be kind of an underlying thing that kind of informs decision-making or informs the way the universe that they live in is constructed. And the way other people react to it, who are outside of it, that kind of thing. But generally, because it's going to be, it's a, it's going to be a pretty violent story, and I don't, <laughs> I don't feel within my right to comment on non-white violence, especially in when it's being used for this sort of entertainment purposes, that kind of thing. So I want it to be very much informed by privilege and whiteness and maleness and that kind of thing and this sort of idea of like how men should handle their problems and how men should like duke it out for whatever that kind of thing and the way like excessive wealth informs an idea of uh, like a fear of death which is the thing i'm reading more and more about and it's fascinating and weird it's super bizarre they want they want to replace their placenta with like young placenta so they can live forever it's nonsense it's (laughs) so weird (laughs) they're just so scared of dying um everyone's scared of dying i think but they're like next level
0: uh if you can afford to build a bunker it's automatically next level
1: (laughs) and there's there's also like in terms of like creating non-white, non-male characters and all that, there's sort of an ongoing discussion that I don't think has ever really reached too much of an answer. This kind of idea of, like, who's allowed to tell what story and for what ends. And I think that makes me a bit nervous telling stories of, like, non-white characters when it's not an experience that I've lived, that kind of thing. Currently, that's sort of happening because I'm the writer on Big Hero 6, which is, has one white character... i think and so it's difficult to kind of dig into that and not feel that kind of uh, guilt of like am i taking away from somebody else am i taking away from someone else's experience am i taking away from someone else's point of view am i putting on somebody as a costume and telling their story um or am i giving like a genuine experience based on what i know that Mm -hmm. kind of thing and that's hard
0: Okay, that's fascinating, actually. I, I didn't expect we would we would go down that road, but I, 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 I also have thought uh, a lot in these last couple of years about if you are, I don't know, uh, let's say a, a white storyteller with what we usually think of as good intentions, which stories are within your purview, um, and if you are, let's say, writing a story that has an awareness of whiteness, uh, perhaps a critique of whiteness, um, even within those terms, uh, what are... Like socially conscious like proportions or demographics within that story and I don't, I don't know.
1: There's a lot of discussion on it and I think the best I can do uh, with it is to just pay attention to it and be empathetic to it um, and be aware of when people screw up and why or how and then try to incorporate that into my own thinking or my own process uh, and know when to step aside as well and went to stay in my lane
0: (laughs) question number six on our list is what's the closest you've come to quitting cartooning?
1: (laughs) Every day (laughs) Um, probably art school art school was really rough it was not an environment that I did well in it was a very stressful environment and it definitely made me like step back a lot and be like why am I doing this
0: was your emphasis on cartooning at that time?
1: Mm-hmm. And it just sort of felt a bit silly. Like, I was going to school for comics, and that didn't feel like a valid choice. And it didn't feel like something that I should be allowed to be so stressed over. And it was just really rough. And, but I didn't know what else I really wanted to do, to do. I had, like, interests in other things, and I was like, maybe I'll explore these. But they never, like, panned out as, like, fields of study or in terms of career. And I sort of kept falling back to comics. Keep dragging me back, bastards. And uh, the good news, I guess, is that a lot of times I feel more and more like I'm getting... Like, I'm feeling more like this is uh, the right choice. I think that... I wish the industry was, like, better set up to care for people who went into it wanting to do comics.
0: Um, I was going to ask, if you don't mind my interrupting, uh, within your program, how much discussion was there of it being an industry, the exigencies of making a living?
1: Not a lot. (laughs) Not a lot. And a lot of the information that was given was pretty outdated, or was on its way to being outdated Mm -hmm. very quickly. And there's a big divide, I think, in all the uh, art school majors, disciplines. There, we go. all the art school disciplines, in terms of old guard versus new blood. You know, there's just like it's just a big, strong divide, and it's really clear and obvious. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very difficult for the for people who are like teacher age to sort of figure out the new way that things get done and it's difficult for people coming in who see it being done very much through social media and all the other things and they're like okay I don't know how to protect my work, I don't know how to protect myself or how to get an agent or what I should be looking for in an agent that kind of thing people don't even know how to price their work people don't know how to like what to be looking for in terms of a salary, in terms of, like, the royalties. And uh, all these other fun things that come in that people just don't know about and don't know how to get their head around. And you have a lot of times there's people figuring it out on their own or from their peers. And the industry doesn't... There's very much a sense that the industry doesn't want you to know. Because if you don't know, they can do whatever they want to you. And that's very hard. That's probably the hardest part of wanting to be a cartoonist professionally, Is not the actual comics making, which is hard and time-consuming and will take your life away slowly, but the hardest part, I think, is everything around that and, like, figuring out how to live off of your work that you're putting all your time and effort into, um, and then no one wants to pay you for it, and that's rough.
0: For you being dissatisfied uh, in the midst of art school, was there a particular project that helped sustain your interest, or was it just that art school is a finite thing and you were done with it after a while? That was
1: about it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I took a lot of time off. I think at some point uh, I was like, okay, well, you take the rest of the semester off, and then you come back and you do it again, and that sort of just kept happening, and I would take years off, that kind of thing. And eventually, I managed to whittle my time down enough so that I had just half a semester left. But it took me nine years to get through it. And it was a huge pain. And I don't know if it was worth it. I don't know. (laughs) Who's to say?
0: Okay, another positive question Hmm. now. What's the best advice you've heard about making comics?
1: Mm -hmm. Gosh, I don't know if I can pull anything out off the top of my head. But I will point to the show Man Ben. There's this artist, and writer, cartoonist, <laughs> named Naoki Urasawa, who made the series Pluto and Twentieth Century mm-hmm. Boys, and he has this show that he hosts um, called Monben. Oh, that. Yeah. Cool. He goes around and he films or well, he doesn't film them if he's got a team. Um, films artists that he likes. Uh, or looks up to or whatever uh, working in their studios, and then they go back and they review the footage and talk over it together and talk about process and all that stuff. And it's been like the most useful thing to watch. It's difficult to find it translated uh, with subtitles. Um, I think there's a bunch on daily motion, <laughs> which makes sense. It's just everything's on daily motion. There's a lot of really good like advice throughout because a lot of people have been struggling with the same problems like for all of comic making time and they figured it out in their own way and sometimes it's a way that like can apply to you and sometimes it isn't. And it's great. It's a real good show. There's a couple moments that stand out. There's like one of the the guy whose name I can't remember, but he's the, the cartoonist who did Children of the Sea. Where he's just like erasing and redrawing a page like six times, and I was like, Oh, thank god, someone else does that, (laughs) you know? Or just like seeing people be sort of to other people, it seems overly precious with their work, but to them, they know exactly what they're going for and they're not going to stop until they get it. And that's the way I approach working, and a lot of people have told me not to forever because it's very time consuming. But to do it any other way to me is like, is. Like impossible. So to see someone like, like a professional who has, like working that way is like, oh good, okay, not a loss. Or like uh, to see the older, like much older cartoonists, who are talking about like, oh yeah, my fingerprints started to go away, so now I wear a glove when I work, and I'm like, oh, that's a fun thing to look <laughs> forward to. <laughs> that kind of thing.
0: And question number eight: What's the worst decision you've made as a cartoonist? Uh,
1: so many sometimes I, my knee jerk reaction is to say art school but at the same time it's like it's so hard to pick apart like how much of that has positively influenced me mm-hmm. because I have such a negative association with it but I know there's good things in there I know I learned a lot that was worthwhile and that, that I don't know that I would have gotten anywhere else um, but it's weighed down by so much negative stuff that I'm like mm, maybe art school is the worst choice Tackling mental health stuff pretty high up there. That should have been a priority. Uh, Not educating myself sooner on the not artistic side of things, the professional stuff. It's just been like a lot of learning things the hard way. I think that's just kind of how it goes. I wish it wasn't the case, but it is.
0: And question number nine. What work from another medium has influenced you the most?
1: anything animated. <laughs> I think cartoons have had a much bigger bigger influence on me than comics ever did. I think a big aha moment for me was the Iron Giant, mm-hmm. which I didn't see till like college, so maybe a little too old for it. Um, but Brad Bird has like a really good way with facial expressions and gestures that i was sort of like kind of loosely grasping at before and like i had it but not really and i sort of knew what i was doing but i didn't and it was more intuitive than anything and then when i saw that movie i like it was like that that's what i want to do like that <laughs> and so that was real real big for me
0: okay uh let's see question number 10 uh, aliens have made contact wow. with the earth oh no they seem benevolent, uh, but we still want to make a good impression. Sure. You've been selected to introduce them to comics. Mm-hmm. What do you show them first?
1: Like Amy Adams and Arrival. Only they'll like, squirt a circle onto the glass and it'll be like a family circus <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh no, aliens. This isn't good comics. I <laughs> have to break it to them. We'll break their hearts. That's rough. Do I like cater to their alien tastes? Or do I like, try a, to put in the
0: It's a, very much a personal decision. <laughs> Uh, I suppose you, like, in the back of your mind, you're making a case for the continued existence of the human species.
1: I feel Moomins. Without Mm -hmm. having read Moomins, I feel (laughs) that would be the one. I like a lot of children's graphic novels. I think Be Prepared by Vera Bosco was, like, a really good, such a good encapsulation of, like, the preteen human experience in terms of like how it captures emotions and reactions to things and like the way you kind of process yourself and people around you. A good one to be like, hello aliens, this is what we're like. Maybe give them some like Garfield. I feel I feel aliens will enjoy Garfield. <laughs> like this is what cats are like. We like them here. And they'll be like, you're all crazy, and we're going to kill you for your own good. <laughs> this yeah. is a terrible comic.
0: Oh, no. like if they read Garfield, they might come <laughs> away thinking, we'll, we'll spare the humans, but these cats are a real problem. Yep, yep. Mischief makers.
1: Or we can give them, like, a really terrible comic, and they'll be like, wow, you guys have done nothing good for, like anybody at all we're just going to either leave you alone entirely which is like okay good that's probably best case scenario probably. or we'll just take you out of your misery and destroy you which is also
0: you know at this point like, hey, let's fine. do it
1: <laughs> who will be too no one's going to be too sad about it
0: at this point <laughs> all right well we'll end on that <laughs> <laughs> on that
1: uplifting note please come destroy us aliens <laughs>